On today's Teaching in Higher Ed, episode number 83, Dr. Tim Clydesdale joins me to talk about why vocation is not a dirty word and how we can all better support our students in navigating college and beyond by talking about vocation. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I really enjoy having conversations with my students about career, about vocation, and I'm excited to become even better at doing this today through today's guest. His name is Dr. Tim Clydesdale, and he's the author of a number of books, including The 20-Something Heart, The First Year Out of College, Driven, Dazed, or Disillusioned, And the book that we'll be talking about today, which was published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press, and that is The Purposeful Graduate, Why Colleges Must Talk to Students About Vocation. Tim has a PhD in sociology from Princeton and also earned a master's degree in sociology from that institution as well. And he is a professor of sociology at the College of New Jersey. Tim, thank you so much for joining me today on Teaching in Higher Ed. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I really appreciate you accepting the invitation and I'm very intrigued by this subject. We've never discussed it on the podcast in the whole year and a half we've been running. Let's start out by defining our terms a bit. What is the difference between talking with our students about their careers and talking about vocation? Great question. So careers are something that I think we talk to students uh, a lot. And uh, they're very they're very much at the, at the front of most uh, students' minds. They're thinking about either the career they're planning to go into, or they're thinking about what career they should find. Um, vocation's a bit different. Vocation is much broader, it's much deeper, and it has a much longer kind of intellectual and, and uh, religious history to it. And so it's really about the type of life you want to lead and the type of person you want to be. And so it's a broader, uh, much broader concept. You mentioned that it has a religious context historically. Does that mean that the conversations are only happening between people who are consider themselves religious or these conversations can happen and should be happening with even people that don't consider themselves religious? Uh, I think the conversations can and should happen with all kinds of people. I do find that folks who have a religious orientation find themselves, uh, I think, ready at the beginning to, to think about this a bit more. But as people hear about the idea more, and once they get bat, past the, the baggage that it has, so the one 
baggage that vocation has is that this is the sort of thing that the people in high school did that weren't going to college. Um, and so a vocation is what, you know, say a carpenter has. Uh, they were in vocational education. And then the other baggage people tend to have is, a, uh, is vocation means you're going to be a priest or a nun. Um, and so once you get past those uh, two ideas that seem to confuse uh, people, and then they realize that it's about something much broader, then I think they're much more interested in participating in the conversation. Yeah, the tension that I hear a lot is is people just thinking that vocation is just careers disguised in a really nice outfit. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> then there's the idea of really what we should be doing. And I should mention, I teach at a fairly small liberal arts college. So what we should be doing is making people better citizens or, or, or making that, that, that we actually ruin college when we start focusing too much on career. I'm sure that you've run into those, <laughs> those concerns as well. And, and real actual concerns. I, I think back to just maybe not being mature enough myself to have been as good of a citizen as I yearn to be now. So I think it's a worthy focus, but, but how do you address those concerns? So one of the things that I try to do is, is to help people see that, one, careers are something that change significantly over time. A single person is, is likely to have at least, according to Department of Labor estimates, at least eight different particular jobs. Now, sometimes that's in the same career field all, all the way through, and sometimes that means radically different sorts of, of careers. I think the other reason why I think we need to think broader than just career is uh, given the you know, rapid change in in the global capitalist uh, society that we live in today, you may find yourself at some point not able to find a career that really matches you. You may find yourself in in a job for a period of time because you're just trying to pay bills, uh, which is a responsible and good thing to do. And it may be that, you know, the broader sense of who you are isn't being all that fully expressed in your work. And it's being expressed in many other places in your, um, in your vault your volunteer work or in your, in your uh, care for a family member, for example. And so that's why I think vocation is, is a much better way of, uh, to talk to students because it, it captures much more the breadth of, of life as it's really lived. Tell me about Katie and Melody, who we get to meet at the very start of your book, and how do they inform the conversation about vocation? So Katie and Melody are, are two really vivacious young women that uh, I met in the course of doing my research. And uh, they were smart kids from relatively affluent backgrounds. They had done the soccer. They had done the summer camps. They had been babysitters. Um, they were in honors programs. They both had gone uh, selected schools that were connected to their uh, kind of their religious tradition but but more out of once they realized it was safe that they could do so they were they didn't want them to be too religious um, but they decided all right I guess I'll, I'll go to this uh, this church affiliated campus because it's not too religious uh, and it seems like a fun place to go and so what was interesting about them is that melody uh, ended up getting into an honors program that was tied to this Lilly Grant initiative to encourage undergraduates to explore ideas of calling and vocation and purpose. 
And so she began with a cohort of other scholars, uh, they called them Lily Scholars, other uh, first-year students, who uh, participated in a seminar and did a set of readings together, and they also had to participate in some community service. Uh, and then in the sophomore years, there were additional things that the Lily Fellows had to do, certain courses they had to take. Um, and this proceeded through the whole four years. And the, the net cumulative effect of this um, on Melody's life was was really quite an astounding difference. She went from, as she described it, being really thinking about a fairly mainstream and relatively consumptive life, a nice house and and a good job and and being really into clothes, as she described it somewhat embarrassingly, <laughs> to thinking about, you know, there is a world of injustice out there. And I know that I'm not the person who's just going to step out there and solve it, but there is a lot more that I can do to really change change the world. And I want to be a part of that. And so she really redirected her life in this wonderful way that, that we as educators enjoy so much. Katie, by contrast, went to a school that didn't have one of these sorts of programs. And so her honors Fellowship just meant that she had to maintain a GPA and at, uh, I think, a 3.25 or better, and she did so. And she got involved in a sorority, and she did some community service through that. But the rather privatized view of life and of the world that she entered with was largely what she had when she left. Um, and so she never really had the world-broadening sort of experience in education that, that Melody had. And so that's why I tell the story, because these two young women are so very similar at entrance to college, but at the exit, they're so, so different. And I know that they, Melody and Katie, really help grab your readers in in the beginning and their stories are so compelling in some positive and less than positive ways. But I'd, I'd like to just take a brief moment to have you describe the, the real breadth of the research and especially the Lilly funded programs that provide the foundation for your research and then your own methodology too. Great. So this, um, this initiative that the Lilly Endowment ran was close to a quarter billion dollars that they had invested in these programs. The programs were implemented on 88 different religiously affiliated campuses across the United States. More than 400 campuses applied for these programs out of about 800 religiously affiliated campuses in the U.S. Uh, so it's a pretty large initiative. The Lilly Endowment approached me and asked me to do a national level evaluation of this initiative. That evaluation, I ultimately ended up studying 26 of the campuses. We interviewed about 200, more than 275 students and alumni and a similar number of faculty and staff on these campuses. We did a lot of site visits. We did um, follow-up uh, interviews. And so that's the data that I'm drawing uh, from as I uh, describe uh, Katie and Melody to you. And what were some of the surprises that you had along the way as you began to analyze the data? So one of the surprises, I guess, for me was I had expected all of this conversation about one's purpose, one's calling, one vocation to attract idealistic students and make them extremely idealistic and basically useless <laughs> when they graduated, that uh, they would have a harder time <laughs> trying to negotiate the, yeah. you know, the world of office politics and live in a cubicle and pay rent and those sorts of things. 
And, and what really surprised me was that uh, instead of these, these students that participate in this having what I call a maladaptive idealism, they had something I called grounded idealism. That is, they had their ideals absolutely. They very much, like Melody, wanted to impact the world in a positive way to bring more justice to some place. But they also understood it was going to be a long process. It was going to be hard. Uh, it was going to take them a long time to get there. There were going to be setbacks and the world wasn't going to you know, welcome them with, with open arms and say, hooray, you're here. We've been waiting for you. Uh, so that was one of the biggest surprises to me because I, I just didn't expect that groundedness among these students. Before I started teaching more traditional undergrads, 18 to 22, I taught in the business world. I did corporate training. And one of the saddest memories I have is of teaching a group of about 100 people. It, it just so happened it was a governmental organization, although that, I don't think that's anything unique. I think I could have just as easily heard this comment from someone in a more traditional business environment. I don't even remember the subject, but it wasn't about this. But one of the, the men in, in the group of about 100 shared that he didn't ever get to be himself at work, that he came to work and he put on the role that he was supposed to play and he did that all day and then he went home and that's where he could be himself. And I thought, oh my goodness, spending, he'd been there something like 30 years to it's mean, this is, this was a long number of decades to have invested one's self into playing the part of someone else that he thought he was supposed to be. And that that idea where I see so many times, not as extreme, and that's an extreme story. And we all kind of, I thought, there wasn't really a question in there. So you don't necessarily have to respond. I, I allowed there to be silence in the room when that happened. But I do see it a little bit with some of the students that I will will mentor during their their four years at our institution and then see them go out and a little part of them dies you know they, they don't they don't always because they want to go out and change the world and they want to go out and they have all these great ideas about i want to fight against human trafficking or i want to go help this and 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 it's oftentimes tied to you know, i'm going to get all this money and give it away <laughs> there, there's all these grand ideas and, I, and so this idea of these programs helping students gain more grounded idealism sounds like such a a really positive outcome I, I love hearing about that surprise and i know one of the other categories you shared about economists who study the public good they generally have three types of categories for students who might attend a university, they may be a free rider, they may be a saint, or they may be a contingent moralist. And how do those three categories inform our conversations about vocation? A friend of mine told me about this research, and I found it absolutely fascinating. One, because it, it was uh, carried out in many different countries um, across the European Union and, and other first world nations. And what they found consistently through these, these sort of uh, kind of game sort of experiments that they would do in, in many different societies was that about 25% of the time, you would have students who they called them uh, the saints. They, they, just, they would always uh, sacrifice their own personal gain for the greater good of, of all the players in this game. And on the other side of that, you always had, say, about 25% of the folks who were free riders who uh, would consistently take the selfish option. 
and, and, and look out for themselves, number one. And what was interesting then was that the remainder, the 50% in the middle, were these contingent moralists, is what I call them, in that if the rules of the game supported a more altruistic outcome, they would, they would support that as well. But if the rules of the game supported, kind of lean towards a more selfish outcome, they would become selfish themselves. And so they kind of move with the, with the, with the flow of the current, if you will, of, of the game. And so as I, I tied that back to thinking about college students, you know, I began to realize that you, know, you have folks like, like Melody that I was talking about uh, in the beginning, who is one of these saintly types who really wants to go out and is willing to kind of sacrifice her life for the, for the greater good, which is a wonderful thing. And, and it's the sort of thing that swells the hearts of educators like me. But where we really need to have more people is in this group of, from this group of contingent moralists who realize that we need to support the institutions that are making the saintly lives possible. We need to support the social programs, the um, the charitable groups, uh, the various programs that, that make it possible for us to have a more humane society and to reach out to those who are hurting and, and uh, in need. Now, I know you looked at an, a wide range of campuses in that had attempted to implement programs like this, and not all of what you found were success stories. So what are some of the mistakes that some of the universities who've attempted to develop effective programs to facilitate more conversations about vocation have made? The two biggest mistakes that, that a college or university could make is this. One is they could, they could design a program that was not organic to their campus. They could design something that just didn't fit the culture of that place. It didn't fit its tradition. It didn't fit the students who were there. It didn't fit what the faculty were there. And that's the first mistake that, that a place could make. The other mistake that they could make is in hiring people to facilitate this sort of work is to not get people who had a high EQ, that is a high emotional intelligence. If you're going to ask people to engage in a conversation about questions of meaning and calling and purpose and what moves people at the deepest level and what sort of people do they want to become, you need folks that have good interpersonal skills, good emotional skills that are just able to talk with a variety of people in a caring and a supportive way and at the same time can think about these programs and 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 help them survive in the complex environment of a college or university. Uh, so you needed, you needed skilled leadership as well. So both of those things were essential. And if either one of those wasn't strong, it, it could really um, hurt the, the program quite a bit. We talked about upfront, sometimes the tension behind people that want to focus more on us becoming better citizens as opposed to so much on vocation, so much on career. But some of the hesitancy just comes out of, uh, on a more personal level, whether or not the person's aware of that. Where, where do you see some of the hesitancy coming from professors at having these conversations with their students about vocation? Well, I think the hesitancy comes from a couple places. One, it comes from the terminology itself. Um, it's real important if you're going to have this conversation to use terminology, to invite people to have this conversation using terminology that works very naturally. If you're asking, for example, uh, 
faculty to help students think through and develop their personal values or their character or their commitment to human services, uh, human service or appreciation of the liberal arts. Faculty, uh, you know, at least two thirds and up can sign on to that. We know that from national data. But if you ask them uh, to, say, um, help students spiritual development, only one out of three faculty feels like that's even something they should be doing. So terminology is really important. And the thing about these programs that I studied, which were on purpose development, is that they were about this first set of things. They were about personal values, character, community service, understanding liberal arts. They're really not asking faculty to do something that's all that different. What they're really asking faculty to do is, is to say, allow this conversation to be as broad as possible. Allow students to speak out of, the, out of uh, their deepest identities, including their religious identities, uh, in talking about these things because that's what's shaping their thinking about this. And so I think it's just a hesitancy fa uh, the faculty can have to the terminology itself that can be, that can be uh, a big part of this. Back on episode 80, we heard from Dr. Mary Jean Saudelli, and she is a Canadian who is not a religious person herself who's teaching in the Middle East. And she talks about how many students that she teaches who are Muslim and who want to express their faith as a part of their education. They, they do not see those things as separate. And so even the emotional maturity that she showed, the emotional intelligence that she showed to say, this is important to these people. And it's an opportunity for them to really integrate what they're learning. So that's helpful to kind of know we don't have to have it all figured out. But sometimes when we start to bring up those terms, like you mentioned, we can, it can seem too, too insurmountable to do it. Right, right. Well, I think, I guess the thing that I would say to faculty are feeling anxious about this is that, well, one, you also need to understand that students have such extraordinary levels of anxiety at this point in time. And that anxiety is due to a number of different causes. But I would say stepping back sociologically, it's due to the fact that they're caught in a riptide, a cultural riptide. The one part of the, uh, the current is saying these are the, you know, the best four years of your life and, you know, party as hard as you can and make the most of them and, and, and you know, take hold of every possible you know, opportunity and live with no regrets. The other side of that current that's creating the, the riptide, which is going the opposite direction, which is saying these four years are incredibly important for your long-term kind of health, happiness, uh, financial solvency, and everything else. And you need to work, 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 and do the very best you can, or you'll never make it out. You know? And so that riptide creates, I think, a lot of anxiety among students. And, and one of the things that I think this uh, conversation can do that can be so helpful, and, and over and over on the campuses that I visited, they had faculty and they had staff uh, uh, tell their vocational stories, they called them, which is just simply a story of how they got to be where they are, doing what they're doing, who have been the critical people, and, and how did their path get there? Because so many students have this myth of the linear path, mm. right? That somehow you just kind of, that everyone goes on this linear path right through college uh, and then they go into this uh, career field and, and, and everything's, the, the, everything's kind of a straight path and there's not these hurdles and there's not these kind of uh, circuitous paths. And so when faculty and staff tell their stories and they say, well, for a while I did this and then for a while I did that and then I did this and then, and then this event happened in my life and eventually this is where I ended up. One, it, it, it gives students a place that are feeling so much anxiety a chance to realize, wow, 
my life doesn't have to follow a linear path and I don't have to have everything figured out. Maybe I just need to think about what I want to do usefully and productively for the next couple of years and then continue to think about these questions. So I think that's such an important thing that faculty can learn. Oh, I hear that so much from my students, that anxiety you're describing so well. And just this idea that they somehow have it in their head that they're, and no wonder we put it in their heads. So no wonder they have it in their heads. But society constantly, you know, asks, so what are you going to do? What is your major? What are you going to do with that? And, and how do they possibly know? And I try to emphasize just how much it's, it is unknown. And we can't know these things. So if, you, if you're not sure yet, good, because you could be like me and be so sure and then be so wrong <laughs> about, about the vast majority of what was going to happen in terms of my life. And then even just the timing of it, things that I thought I'd get married at the same age my parents got married and I didn't get married until I was 34. <laughs> and the list goes on and on of whether timing didn't work out the way I thought or whether the linear path that you describe did not work out as I thought either. And But it is really a... a attention, I think, where because we ask students to choose their a major and that seems so tied, then it seems like they think there's a magic formula. I get a lot of anxiety around what the major should be too, because there's some students I'll talk to who'll feel the tension behind, you know, social sciences and really that resonates with a lot of their sense of meaning. But then business, they have all the pressure. That's where their parents are telling them to go. That's where they think the job market's telling them to go and so on. So it's that's a lot of 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 tension, I guess, that, that the students experience. I think giving students an opportunity to hear our stories can really help uh, mm-hmm. step down so much of that tension. I think the other thing that, that, that faculty can do that can be so useful is to also bring in stories as they can. I mean, if they can bring in alumni, that's ideal. If they can bring in colleagues from other fields who can tell their stories, that's great. But at, at I, I think there's not a, a course out there or, or a field of study or a professional field out there that they couldn't at least have some exemplary people's profiles embedded into it. I mean, wouldn't it be exciting if, if you're, a, you know, you're taking your first intro to biology course, you're taking your first, you know, intro to management course that, you know, say every Friday at the, for the first three minutes of class, the professor profiled some outstanding man or woman in that field who was doing something really innovative, really serving the public good in that field that is not the things that, that students typically think about. How inspiring that could be to them and how much more freeing that could be to students to, uh, to hear those things from faculty and begin to think, wow, right, so biology doesn't mean I have to be a physician. Or, you know, management doesn't mean I have to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, there's so many different things that I can do that this is a great way to start to, I guess, kind of seed this conversation with students. I love that idea, too, because it helps just see how more complex careers are today in the sense of there's jobs that exist today that didn't exist five years ago and that it it. It isn't as simple as what are the, between these 10 careers, what's the one that you're going to pick? And if you pick the wrong one, you'll be punished for the rest of your life. But just how much is evolving and the complexity, like you talked about, of the nonlinear path. Well, I'm going to be linking in the show notes, of course, to your book and also to an article that Inside Higher Ed did about your research and your book. I'd also just wonder, before we move to the recommendation segment, are there any particular institutions that we could 
post a link to in the show notes that are really inspiring around this area? That is a great question, and I so wish I could tell you some, but unfortunately, my institutional review board would 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 slap oh. my knuckles if I did. <laughs> uh, I promise confidentiality oh, to, yeah. to the individuals I spoke to. However, there is a an organization that uh, Council of Independent Colleges runs called Network for Vocation in Undergraduate Education. At this point, there are nearly 200 campuses that pay dues to be a part of this of this organization. And when they do, then they get access to a, a website that they maintain with a ton of resources, including syllabi, book discussion guides, movie discussion guides, other forms of you know pedagogical aids and uh, that you can connect with. They offer regional and national conferences. And so certainly to those who are in a campus administration who might be listening, that would be something you would want to you'd want to think about and and see if your campus might want to join that organization. Before we move to the recommendations segment, is there anything I haven't asked you or you haven't had a chance to share that we're going to really miss out on if we don't contribute to this conversation about vocation? I can think of one thing that I, I don't think I've mentioned yet, which is just when you have these conversations with students, it's so important to also have opportunities for students to get out of the campus bubble and actually do service, whether that service is local whether that service might be in the form of an internship, whether that service is international um, or or involves a bit of travel. That was the kind of the, the other side. So good conversations about these ideas combined with the opportunity to serve various groups, uh, various needy organizations or individuals that really helped students think through and, and clarify what they wanted to do with their own lives as they left college and university. Thank you. And this is the point in the show which we transition over to each give a recommendation or two or 40. And <laughs> I'm going to just give one recommendation. And it has to do with, I mentioned when I spoke with Therese Houston back on episode 77, there was the dark secret about teaching what you don't know. And people might remember me admitting on that episode that I'll be teaching something I don't know much about coming in January. And one of the things that I've done is in my own note-taking program, which happens to be Evernote, but you could do this in whatever digital way you track your ideas. But I have set up a note that's, it's real simple, ideas, colon, the name of the class. And in Evernote, I've put it as one of my shortcuts. So it's really easy for me to get to. I don't have to go search for things. It's one click once I open up Evernote. And it's funny, I went to it as I was contemplating what my recommendation would be for people listening today. I went to it and I... <laughs> I started reading it and I'm going, I'm a genius. That's an amazing idea. How did I come up with that? Because I've completely forgot about almost all of them. Because when I'm going through, I did follow one of the pieces of advice that Therese gave, which was download five syllabi for the course that you have not taught before to get familiar with it. It's been a long time since I've taught a new course. It's good. It's healthy. This is good. <laughs> this mm. is good to be challenging ourselves in our teaching in this way. But, but I would not have been able to recall these ideas when I went to actually develop the curriculum or to actually create the assignments. And it's just really, I've just been doing it. I've been doing it since I got assigned maybe 
two and a half or three months ago. And it's just a really nice recording of some some really terrific ideas about teaching this course. So that would be my recommendation. Even if you've taught the class, I by the way, I do have ideas, note tabs for classes I've taught for 10 years now. So I, I would suggest for any classes that you're scheduled to teach for the upcoming semester, once you get scheduled to teach it, just have your list of ideas. And every time something comes to your mind or every time you see a video or every time you find an idea from another colleague, just, just keep recording them. You don't have to commit to doing all of them. But I really found that to be a great practice and, and a great resource that I even forget about until I go back and look at it again. That's a great idea. Now, mine's going to seem so much more low-tech to uh, many of the great uh, high-tech things that you've recommended uh, on this podcast since I've been listening to it. But one of the things that's so important for good conversations is good food. Mm-hmm. Mealtime is one of the few times we actually stop. We put away our digital devices. We look each other in the eye, and we talk to each other. And it's a moment of deep humanity and, and increasingly a rare moment uh, in our busy, busy lives. And so as I thought about the recommendation I would make, it, it, it's going to sound funny, but it's, it's a slow cooker with a manual switch, a rival slow cooker with a manual switch. And in it, you can put anything from a cheese dip to, uh, to marinara and gather people together for conversation. I, I think because this interview is happening during the holidays, I'm thinking about how many times I've used it and will be using it still to come. And it really facilitates being able to actually, when the when the meal is happening, you're not busy, as busy as the cook, and you can really focus on your guests and enjoy the conversation. I am so glad that you recommended a slow cooker. I have had this just complete infatuation. You should see my Pinterest board of recipes. And a lot of them you'll notice are are now relating to slow cookers, but I don't do it. So it's kind of, this will be my challenge is to take that away. <laughs> In addition to all the other wonderful resources you've talked about is to take that away and try it. Have you ever tried it on campus or is it something mostly you do out of your home? This is mostly something I do out of my home, but it is something I'm thinking. Uh, I have uh, two smaller classes I'll be teaching in the semester to come, and it would be much, it, it'd be much more likely that I'd be able to actually carry it out. In a class of thirty, a little bit harder. In class of of ten and and uh, eight, I actually think I might be able to to do something and 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 feed everyone well. So. Yeah, that's fabulous. One of the things that I'm also going to be doing in the coming year is trying out poster sessions. It's something that Doug McKee from Yale has recommended on past episodes. And so I'm going to be following his blog and his advice and 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 giving that a go. But I did think it would be nice to have refreshments. And so maybe I'll, hmm, but it might not be enough. I'll have to try this out. Start small. I don't have to start so big. I can start right. small and just have a meal with, you know, the four members of our family. They would appreciate that probably. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, I really appreciate all of these ideas and just your your important contribution to the podcast and just to our community. And I just appreciate your time, especially because I think you and I are both still on Christmas break and you were willing to to come on the show and just, just share all of this with us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. And thanks for this podcast. I really enjoy it. Thanks once again to Tim Clydesdale for being on the show and for all the great ideas and resources that you shared about talking 
to our students about vocation. And as usual, I've got my list of reminders here. I would love to have anyone who has yet to subscribe to the email newsletter. What that does is get you a weekly email where you can get the show notes with all of the links included in it, including a link to a slow cooker with a manual switch from this week's episode. And sometimes when I follow through on it most weeks, uh, an article about teaching or productivity. I'm, I'm apologizing because it's, it's, I'm recording this during the winter break and let's say I have been less than regular about my blogging aspect of my role on teaching in higher ed, but I'll be back to my regular weekly blogs here soon. And also if you have any feedback about the show, I always welcome those emails. And the easiest way to do that is probably to go to teaching in higher ed dot com slash feedback that'll come right to me and and uh, by the way subscribing is teaching in higher ed dot com slash subscribe as always i really appreciate the reviews that you've been writing and the ratings that you've been giving it on itunes or stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the program because it just helps other people find out about the show and we can continue to grow this community and have more people to dialogue with about teaching in higher ed Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.